Hey, good? I'm good. All right. You all right? All right, here we go. All right, here we go. All right, good morning, everybody. Um, I don't have anything clever to say to get us started, so how about we just get started with, uh, with what we got? How about that? Um, so my role is to uh, talk about the gifts of the Spirit, and we spent some time yesterday in chapter 12, obviously, listing them all and giving some definitions and putting them into categories. And um, the only disclaimer I'll give is it, I'm aware that not everybody teaches or sorts them out the way I do, and that's fine. I, I tried to make that clear by the end that you may do it a little differently. I, I just tried to be thorough and to give you some ways to think about it that way, so hopefully that's, that's an encouragement to you. Um, when I think about these subjects, and when I think about what I talked about, like how we've organized all these certainty conferences, we want to understand doctrinally who we are. Um, it necessitates that we understand who we're not. But at the end of the day, who do we really want to be as disciples of Jesus Christ? And so to be disciples of Jesus Christ, that means that we're learners, we're students, we're pupils. Uh, that means we need to be good students of the Scripture. And so, in so doing, that's, you know, that's my goal that, you know, thank God we have the Scripture, we have the mind of Christ, thank God that we need to put that into practice, and so, you know, my hope is, is that we'll be able to do that. Um, so yesterday, when I was going through the list of the gifts, uh, I mentioned things that probably all of us already knew and agree with, and that's that some of the gifts have ceased to operate, and, uh, this then, the ceasing of the operation of all the gifts, actually becomes a very significant point in the distinction between conservative Baptist-type Christians and the charismatic-type Christians. Um, this issue is typically referred to as cessationism, when, if, if things have ceased or not. So we as dispensationalists, right, are going to be cessationists. We believe that some of the Spiritual gifts were limited to the first century, and uh, some of the non-cessationist groups like the Charismatics, Pentecostals, Assemblies of God, Lutherans, Catholics, Methodists, you know, would, would let things continue on whether they understand them or not. But the issue that I want to take on this morning is uh, the fair question that everybody should have in their minds as you're, as you're considering this is, can you prove that some of the things have ceased? Um, so that's what I want us to look at today, and we're going to do that by looking at the next chapter, and that's 1 Corinthians 13. So if you have your Bibles, you might want to get that out. Probably most of the stuff will pop up on the screen, but um, 1 Corinthians 13, you know, the, the love chapter. Um, so 1 Corinthians 13 begins with some comparisons. And uh, so I put in your notes, just as a statement of introduction, some things are better than other things, right? Everybody knows that some things are better than other things like I think everybody knows that dogs are better than cats right I mean, everybody knows that I think everybody knows that coffee is better than tea I mean if you don't think so you're just wrong I mean everybody would probably agree that health is better than wealth I mean if you can only pick one right I mean health is better than wealth people probably would agree that, you know, getting old is better than the alternative, <laughs> right? I mean, I, I am confronted with this challenge regularly, ever so much more every year. Um, I think most people would agree that 
a steak dinner is better than a vegan dinner. Right? Now, we have some good brothers in the church that don't agree, but the Bible says they're wrong. I mean, Proverbs 15, 17 says, Better is a dinner of herbs where love is, listen, than a stalled ox and hatred therewith. And the way the God lays out the, this is just for fun, the way God lays out this comparison is, is that he takes something that's normally worse, a dinner of herbs, but he combines it with a better environment, love. And he says, well, the environment's more important, so you can have a lousy dinner. You'd rather have a stalled ox ready to chop you up some steaks. But if everybody hates each other, then, you know, even a good steak doesn't taste good anymore. But, but the truth is, a steak dinner is better than a vegan dinner. Everybody understands that. Okay, so the Bible actually does have a lot of better than comparisons. And I put these in your notes just to, just to have some fun and, and let you consider it. I mean, throughout the book of Proverbs, right, wisdom is greater than riches. Um, it's, it's probably the most used comparison, at least in the book of Proverbs. Uh, we know that obey, to obey is better than sacrifice. We know that a day in God's presence is better than a thousand days. Uh, we know that it's better to trust in God than to trust in man or to trust in princes. We know that it's better to be slow to anger uh, than to be the mighty, right? He that's slow to anger is better than, greater than the mighty. Heaven is better than hell, right? Open rebuke is better than secret love. Uh, we know that spiritual life is better than physical life. Uh, we know that the New Testament is better than the Old Testament. That seems like a funny thing. I mean, the Old Testament is also wonderful, but according to Hebrews chapter 7, it's called a better testament. That's what it's called. Um, we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it's better, all the younger single men know this, it's better to be married than to burn with lust. Right? So that I've always tried to counsel young guys. That is a biblical reason to get married. It shouldn't be the biblical reason to get married. You should have some others. Because the next one is also true, because it's also better to remain alone than to marry the wrong person. Um, I always say it this way, you'd rather wish you were married than wish you weren't. And uh, so, you know, those are, those are things to consider. The Bible frequently gives us comparisons where something is better than something else. And you know, if you really believe the Bible and if you really take to heart when God says something is better than something else, well, then that should affect your daily choices, shouldn't it? I mean, if you really believe that wisdom is better than riches, then you'll work harder to make sure you obtain wisdom than you work to obtain riches, if you really believe that, right? If you really believe that your spiritual life is more important than your physical life, then you'll work harder to maintain spiritual health and wellness than you will physical health and wellness. And don't, don't hear me say to ignore physical health and wellness. I'm not trying to make a joke and an excuse for being fat and out of shape. I, we should just make sure that while we pursue the other thing, that we pursue even more the thing that God says is better, right? So comparison and contrast, those are effective teaching tools. And so when we start 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in the first three verses, what we find is that charity is greater than spiritual gifts. That's what it says. He says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I'm become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy 
and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains and have not charity, I'm nothing, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. So charity is a greater thing. And specifically, he refers to several things in this chapter that charity is greater than. It's greater than tongues, it's greater than prophecy, it's greater than discernment, it's greater than wisdom, it's greater than knowledge, it's greater than faith, and it's greater than giving. And it's interesting, why is that? Well, the reason I believe is, I put this in your notes, is because gifts define what you do, but charity defines why you do them. And it's important to understand why you do them. And so when it says, for example, you know, charity is greater than giving, if I give all my, need, my goods to feed the poor, you say, well, charity is giving. You ever give to a charitable organization? You're charitable when you give. You say, charity is giving. How can it be greater than the thing if it's the same as the thing? If you give all your stuff to the poor, isn't that charity? Well, maybe it is, and maybe not. I don't know, because I think we understand that it's true that it's possible to give without loving, but it's impossible to love without giving. So the love aspect is greater. I actually love the fact that the Bible uses the word charity Amen. in this particular location. I think it gives you the definition you need. And so we're not going to study verses 4 to 7, the part that, People read in the weddings, right? But it does describe the selfless nature of biblical charity. And it sheds light on how we are supposed to view love, as we refer to it. Um, but then Paul brings us back to what I consider to be the real context when we get to verse number 8. And that's spiritual gifts. And so our study this morning is going to be from verse 8 to verse 13. And... And the thing is, is that in this section of Scripture, Paul points out that there are some things that absolutely are going to cease, okay? And, but, but not charity, by the way, because verse 8 starts, charity never faileth. Charity's never going to cease. That's why it's better than a lot of these other things, right? But some of them are definitely going to cease. So, so that's our topic, the cessation of the gifts. Follow along, I'm going to read from verse 8 down to the bottom. Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Um, whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. But then shall I know, even as also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. All right, let's pray, and uh, we'll get into our outline. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, as always, we ask that your Holy Spirit would carry out his ministry in the lives of these brothers and sisters, that you would teach us and guide us into all truth. I pray, Lord, that you would be exalted. I pray that you would be magnified. I pray that you would cause your word to come alive. I pray that you would give us understanding and clarity and assurance of the things that are true so that we can run after them with all fervor. Lord, we love you and we give our lives to you. We dedicate this time to you and we thank you in advance for what you're gonna do in Christ's name, amen. All right, the first thing I want us to do is point number one is to recognize the comparisons. There's comparisons that are going on in here. So Paul uses this 
teaching method of parallelism, right, to communicate the durability of charity. And, and he gives a list of things that are temporary and then things that are permanent, right? So in verse number 8, some of the things that are temporary, prophecies. Well, we saw that as a temporary spiritual gift. It says prophecies shall fail. Tongues. We saw that as a temporary spiritual gift. Tongues shall cease. Knowledge shall vanish away. Okay, now this is the one with an asterisk because it kind of depends on where you're going to go with this definition of knowledge. We spent enough time yesterday talking about this. Some people want to misunderstand, in my opinion, this to mean just general knowledge. When is general knowledge ever going to go away? We're always, the earth is going to be full of the knowledge of the Lord, right? I mean, when is ever knowledge really going to go away? That's why I think it has to refer to, in the context of spiritual gifts in these three chapters, the word of knowledge as it's described in chapter number 12. If that's true, that knowledge refers to the word of knowledge, that's a temporary spiritual gift. It's going to vanish away, right? So verse 9 goes on, it says, we know in part, and we prophesy in part. So at some level, I guess it's fair, isn't it, to say that the comparison really is the partial versus the perfect, where perfect scripturally, of course, means to be mature or complete. And so the things that are permanent or the things that are perfect, the things that are complete and mature, Charity, charity never faileth. And in verse number 10, the real focus of what our study is going to dig into today is this thing that's referred to quite ambiguously, that which is perfect. So there is something that is the that which is perfect. And boy, I tell you, people have argued and fought over the definition of what that which is perfect really is and in, in the lack of a complete understanding, you know, a typical... Lazy Christian will just pick whatever they want and plug it in and say, well, that's what it must be because that's what fits what I want to believe, right? And they go on with that. Um, so anyways, there's some things that are partial and there are some things that are going to endure and they're going to be permanent. Um, and these things are illustrated in verse number 11 by childhood and manhood. That's how they're illustrated, right? When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, once I, once I grew up, once I became mature, right, I put away childish things. And, and, that's, and that's clear. Childhood is temporary. Childhood passes away in the course of time. But manhood, once, once you achieve adulthood, right, maturity, well, that remains. And that's very clear. This is very simple. I don't need to give you a lot of explanation in this. These, these are the illustrations that we're using. And then you get into verses 12 and 13, and it continues with some comparisons where it, it gives a time stamp. It says, now some things are going to happen, then some other things are going to happen. Now some things are going to happen, then some other things are going to happen. So now we have some partial things. Then we're going to have enduring perfect things. So if we're going to put all that together, right, I laid out every one of those statements in a, in a 
double listed form in your notes. Does that come up on the screen? The, the little chart with the left side and the right side? Oh man, come on Andy, this is horrible. It's not your fault, I'm sorry. It's my fault, we didn't make the PowerPoint right. Okay, you have it in your notes, praise the Lord. On the left side, you have now the things that are partial, okay? And then on the right side, it says, then you have the things that are perfect. So according to verse number eight, whether there be prophecies, well, they're gonna fail, so that's partial. Whether there be tongues, well, they're gonna cease, so that's partial. Whether there be knowledge, well, it's gonna vanish away, so that's partial. And then you get to verse number nine. So we know some things in part, and we prophesy some things in part, but then there's gonna be this thing, that which is perfect has come, in verse number 10. And the partial will be done away at whatever time is that the yet-to-be-determined that which is perfect thing shows up. Okay, that's gonna be the time stamp for the then. And so I was a child for a partial amount of time and then ultimately mature as a man. Now we see through a glass darkly, but then we'll see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know, even as also I am known. And you can even include verse 13, because now abideth faith and hope, and of course charity abides now also, but in my list I moved it to the right just so that you can differentiate the fact that it also continues on perfectly forever. Charity never faileth. So we're going to work this morning to define all these things, okay? But before we do that, uh, let me just refer to that last grouping and from verse number 13. Because I, I want to I get this in your mind too. It's going to be important by the time we're done. Faith exists now. But it's going to cease one day. Um, faith, even in the general sense, as defined by 2 Corinthians 5.17, Hebrews 11.1, 1, it's the opposite of sight, right? Faith is the opposite of sight. So once we have sight, once we have physical, tangible, literal sight evidence, well then, we don't need faith anymore. And that's going to be the case in the millennium, right? It's not a system of faith anymore. People are going to be saved in the millennium, but they're not going to be saved by grace through faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ because you don't need faith because you have sight. Jesus will be alive in a glorified body ruling from David's throne in Jerusalem. Hope is something that exists now, of course, right? But it's going to cease one day because by definition, hope waits for an expected future. God promises some things that are going to happen. It's not cross your fingers and hope so. It's an absolutely assured thing that's going to happen. It's just yet future. But once that future event comes to pass, then we don't hope for it anymore. It's been realized, right? So Jesus Christ's appearing in the book of Titus, right, is our blessed hope. Once he actually appears, well then, there's no more, we don't have hope anymore. It's been realized, yay, you know. But charity, on the other hand, charity, of course, it exists now, but it also exists in eternity. Charity never fails. The love of God is going to envelop you long after this earthly life is over. And your loving behavior towards one another in eternity, that, that continues also, praise the Lord. 
So these are the comparisons that Paul uses. And to understand the passage as a whole and determine each individual element that's mentioned, you have to see how Paul uses parallelism to show these comparisons and contrasts. So, okay, we have a couple of lists, right? So what does that all mean? What's that, what's that really all about? So I would say, very simply, I'm a simple guy, the partial is, it's just that. It's just in part. It's not complete. It's temporary. They serve, I would say, don't discount them. They serve a very valuable, legitimate purpose. It's just for a time, though. It's just not the full meal deal. Eventually, there's going to come a time when they're not necessary anymore, right? Okay, but does one influence the other? How do they work together and all that sort of thing? That's what we're going to get into. And so that's the second point in your notes, and that's reference the correlations. So there's certain comparisons. How do they relate to one another? Let's look back at that list. When you see how these items co-relate to one another, you're going to notice some things. And the first thing you're going to notice is that manhood, by definition, eliminates childhood. Right? I mean, that's intuitive. Once you become a man, in fact, by definition, you don't qualify to be called a man until you're putting away childish things. Now, you know, we, you want to tag manhood onto a physical age stamp, but you know what I'm talking about. Some people have the age but never mature. When they never mature, they act childishly their whole lives. That's an embarrassment. They shouldn't do that. What do you want for your children? Well, when they're children, you want them to be children. It's wonderful. But eventually, you want them to grow up. If your 30-year-old is still a child, there's something wrong. You want to take them to the doctor. You want to see what's going on or a psychiatrist or whatever. whatever. Um, but manhood, by definition eliminates childhood. So once you cross that line, there's no going back. Okay, the next one. <coughs> Clear sight eliminates dark sight. Of course, right? Once you see things face to face, well, by definition of seeing things face to face, you no longer, you know, see it in an enigma. It's no longer, you know, like my, my drive in this morning from my house. My house is in a little valley, and it's really foggy, you know. And so I had to turn, you know, I got a car with the lights turned on automatically, but they didn't turn on yet, so I had to turn them on manually, and I think I turned them off when I parked here. And so, you know, you couldn't see super clear down the road because it was real. Okay, but by definition, once the cloud lifts and you see everything's clear, well, guess what you do? We don't have dark seeing anymore. Everything's clear, right? Super simple. You're like, why did I come here to hear this? This is simple. <laughs> because these are the comparisons that the Lord gives us. Full knowledge eliminates partial knowledge. Again, by definition. Once you know something fully, you know more than you knew when you knew partially, right? I mean, it's, it's pretty simple. But all that is just illustrative to set up what I think is the real issue today. And the real issue you need to land on and you need to understand if you're really going to understand what the Scripture teaches about the other things that people argue about. And that's that the perfect eliminates the partial. When you get to whatever that perfect thing is, the partial without question has to be done away. Again, hang with me. By the time we get to the end, you should have clear sight <laughs> hopefully 
Once that which is perfect has come, then whatever it is, that which is in part, and much of which is defined for us in this text, the spiritual gifts of prophecies and tongues and knowledge, well, they're going to be done away. But it all hinges on determining biblically, comparing Scripture with Scripture, what that which is perfect is referring to. That actually matters. So, let's go to the next point. That was quick. Uh, let's, let's reveal the choices. We have some options to consider, okay? Um, there's been a lot of debate that's been had over this subject. There's a lot of disagreement about what this is. I have a dear friend. Um, I got saved when I was in college in Arkansas, and this was one of my new Christian friends after I got saved back then, Jonesboro, Arkansas. And we keep in touch to this day. He's, he's actually a, a Christian filmmaker, and some of my older friends might remember who he is. He's a good guy. And uh, he actually made a Christian film years ago. As a lady in our church showed up and asked me about it last Sunday. It was kind of funny. Many years ago, he made a Christian film based on a Bible study that we did in his living room Many, many years ago, I, he asked me to lead a Bible study in his living room, and uh, we talked about the six days of creation, and a day is like a thousand years, and the six thousand years of man, and the seventh millennial day, and the whole, we, we, did, we laid all that out. He'd never heard it before. He thought it was the most amazing thing ever. He's like, that's so cool, I'm going to make a movie about it. Whatever, you be you. And uh, so he makes this movie about it. While he's making the movie, he calls me, and he's like, hey, Jeff, I'm going to use your name because you kind of got me going on this subject can I use your name in this movie? And I said, absolutely not. So he went and he made the movie and he used my name anyway. <laughs> I, I don't know if I can sue him, except I think the Bible says I shouldn't. So somewhere out there is a lame Christian movie with the name Jeffrey Bartell in it. So, you know, if you're bored, I'm famous. This friend, this particular friend, Rich Cristiano is his name. God bless you, Rich. Had just had a birthday. Um, all his life, for whatever reason, it seems like there's one and only one issue that seems to be his passion to try and figure out. What is the that which is perfect thing in 1 Corinthians 13? I'm telling you, he's been my friend for over 30 years, and I never have a phone call with him that he doesn't say something about that which is perfect. And I'm like, Rich, land the plane, bro. Like... Come on. And so, you know, anyway, um, I only say that to illustrate some people circle this field forever and can never seem to land it, and, and my goal is hopefully we can do that. There's some choices. Okay. I would say that this is critically important for you today in your Christian life. Why? Because you need to know and not be confused about what stops and when. That's the important thing. Because some things have already stopped like the temporary spiritual gifts. And some things will stop, like faith and hope. And the false teaching in this area has led many sincere, well-intending believers astray, thinking that things have clearly stopped that still exist or vice versa. 
So certainly some things do stop, and the big question then is when. So when do the partial things cease to exist? Well, the answer biblically is when that which is perfect is come. So let's start diving into that term, that which is perfect. So the first mention of the word perfect in all your Bible is Genesis 6-9. Noah was perfect in his generations. First time it's ever mentioned. So in that context, obviously, to be perfect in your generations means that Noah's family line was unblemished. It was unspotted with mingled seed from the sons of God that came down and took wives of the daughters of men. And it wasn't that Noah was perfect in his generation. He wasn't like a super holy guy among the guys that were alive back then. It means that he was perfect in his generations. That means that he was unspotted. He was unblemished. And that's going to be important. Because it leads us to what I consider to be the, the only two reasonable options for that which is perfect. And we can't just use conjecture about what we think it means based on logic. We have to be able to prove it biblically. So my first option for you to consider, letter A, is the case for the Scripture canon. The case for the Scripture canon. Now this is where most people are at. And when I say most people, I mean most people like us. Uh, conservative theologian type people are, are going to land here. We're, they're going to believe that that which is perfect has to refer to the Scripture. Why do they think that? Well, there's, there's a case to be made. There's no question about it. So let's define the perfect thing with the Scriptures and, and see if we can determine if that indeed bears out. So we come across things like Psalm 19 and verse number 7 where it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. So that's pretty good. And you have James 1.25 that says, but whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. And while in verse 25 it says a doer of the work, you could back up a couple of verses to like verse 22 where it says be a doer of the word, right? The perfect law of liberty is the word of God. There's, I think, no debate about that. So certainly, certainly a biblical defense can be made, right, that the Word of God is perfect. No doubt about it. Everybody said amen. Thank you. So let's look at the comparisons. Let's look at some of these now and then comparisons, and let's, let's try and put together a scenario and see if we can confirm that this bears out through the words of the Scripture. So it says now, first it says now we see through a glass darkly. And so we're going to use this illustration, this glass that it's referring to certainly is, is, a, is what we would call a looking glass. It's a mirror, right? And in a mirror, the way a mirror is constructed is you look through the glass, right? You, we say we look in a mirror. We don't say we look through a mirror, right? Alice in Wonderland, through the looking glass. Okay, she kind of stepped through it. Of course, that was a weird book. Anyway, you look through the glass, and your vision is reflected off the backing, and then you see yourself on the other side, right? And it says, now we see through a glass darkly. If you see through a glass darkly, that means that there's only a limited amount of light available. It's, it's an enigma. It's like in a riddle or a parable or a mystery form. So yesterday... 
there was some reference made to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and the story of Moses coming down off Mount Sinai with the law, right? Moses is getting the law from God. He's coming off the mount, and, and he's got a veil over his face, right, because of the glory of God on him. And, and the lesson in 2 Corinthians 3 is that Israel has a veil on their heart now and their understanding and their reading of the Old Testament. So, you know, how, do you, how does an how does a Orthodox Jew these days read Isaiah 53 and not see Jesus Christ? Like, how is that possible? Well, the answer is, is because there's a veil on their heart. That's the reason why, right? But it goes on in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse number 18, and I want you to notice the words that God chooses to use. It says, but we all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed in the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. So the Old Testament understanding, the Old Testament revelation of the glory of the Lord was not complete. It was veiled. It was, it was a bit of a riddle. It was a bit of a mystery, right? It spoke of mysteries and typologies that are only fully revealed in the New Testament. And such things were in the process of being revealed, certainly at the time in the first century while Paul is penning this letter and the New Testament revelation is yet unfolding through the revelatory gifts, right? The speaking of God's word and ultimately the, the writing down of it. So now, Paul says, we see through a glass darkly. But then, whenever then is, is face to face. So let's go back to the scripture. Let's go back to James. We read verse 25. Let's back up to verse 23. James 1.23. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, what's he like? Well, he's like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. Well, there's some good parallel there. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightforward forgetteth what manner of man he was. Again, the scripture is used very clearly in this imagery, the word of God, right? A hearer of the word. A guy gets, he's, if he's only a hearer of the word and he's not a doer of the word, he's, he's like this guy who sees himself in a glass, right? He sees himself, but then he just leaves and he doesn't comb his hair. He's just like, okay, there you are. I'm going to leave now. Well, that's not what you're supposed to do. You should comb your hair if you have any. But the word of God clearly is likened unto a mirror. And, and when we look into it, we see ourselves face to face, right? Now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. So again, we, we understand now that you see through the glass. Your reflection comes off the backing and you see yourself. Well, you have to know that the perfect backing for a mirror is pure, refined silver, right? So it shouldn't surprise us when Psalms 12, verse 6 says, the words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Back in Exodus chapter 33 and verse 11, the Bible says that God spoke to Moses face to face, that's what it says, face to face. 
But we know that that actually didn't happen literally, or I guess maybe better termed physically, right? Because we also know from Exodus 33:20, a little further in that chapter, that no man can actually see God and not die. But it says he saw him face to face. So face to face has to have another biblical definition. And it actually does. It's defined as, as a man speaks to his friend. So to see face to face is open, clear communication. As a man speaks to his friend. You're not hiding anything. You're not speaking in riddles and mysteries. You speak to your friend openly. You tell him secrets about what's going on. You share your life with that person. You have open, clear communication. And God spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Moses is recounting these stories to Israel at the end of their journey before they're about to enter the promised land. The book of Deuteronomy chapter 5 starting in verse 2 he says this. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. The Lord made not this covenant with our fathers but with us, even us, who are all of us here alive this day. Notice. The Lord talked with you face to face. Who's he talking to? Moses is speaking to Israel. The Lord talked with you face to face in the mount out of the midst of the fire. I stood between the Lord and you at that time to show you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid by reason of the fire and went not up into the mount. Well, once again, we have this terminology. The Lord talked with you, Israel, Face-to-face. Well, not literally, because he goes on to define it in the parenthesis part. Oh, well, I mean, I stood between the Lord and you at that time to show you the word of God. So God speaking to you face-to-face is associated biblically with Moses telling Israel, showing Israel the revelation of the word of God that he was given on the mount. So his word then fulfills that requirement. It's also referred to with some other terminology. I thought I'd just throw it out to you. Numbers 12, 8, mouth to mouth. Very interesting. In Numbers 12, 8, it says, With him will I speak mouth to mouth. God is talking about Moses, right? Even apparently, not in dark speeches. So again, we're not seeing through the glass darkly. We're face-to-face. We have open communication. We have clear communication going on right now, not in dark speeches. And the similitude of the Lord shall, be, shall he behold. Wherefore then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So the rebellion's coming up. Why is Moses the only guy that gets to represent you? We're just as good as him, you know, that whole thing. And the Lord's like, stop it, just stop it. Moses is different. I spoke to him mouth-to-mouth. You're lucky you get to hear from him. But today... We all, y'all, we all can talk to God like Moses did, right? We're not seeing his actual full glory presentation because we're not in our glorified state yet and we drop dead. But we have his full revelation. There's no question about it. We have clear, open communication, don't we? All the mysteries are now revealed and they're all available. There's no more dark sayings for us, right? Praise the Lord. 
but we're not done. So we got to keep studying. We got to keep digging. Okay, now we're going to go back to the text. It says, now we know in part, right? So clearly, there's a couple of ways to look at that. On one hand, I mean, let's just be real. We all are still learning, right? I mean, who here really thinks they got it all figured out and have perfect knowledge? No, of course not. We're still all learning, right? But it's also easy to say that at the time of the writing of 1 Corinthians, right, the New Testament was not yet complete, so certainly then their knowledge was not complete. No question about that, right? I mean, it bears it out even in the same book a few chapters earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse number 2 where it says, And if any man think that he knoweth anything, notice this, he knoweth nothing, here's the key word, yet, as he ought to know, because full knowledge is coming, but not yet. You don't have it yet. We're still working on it, <laughs> right? So, is it possible that to know means more than that? In other words, if the, the term to know means to have knowledge available, well, then this application of the Scripture canon works perfectly, right? No question about it. The first mention to know in the Bible is Genesis 3, 5, that eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that meant to know good and evil. If they would eat of the fruit, then they would know good and evil. So I guess the question in that context would be, did Adam and Eve immediately know everything that could be known about good and evil when they ate the fruit? Or did they now have that knowledge available to them and the ability to find it? Because if to know means accessibility to the truth, then the Old Testament alone was not full access, but the completion of the New Testament is. So now we know in part, but then we shall know, even as we are known. So this is certainly complete knowledge. Whatever it is, it's full and complete knowledge. And it says, as we are known. As we are known by who? Well, I think the answer is clearly as we are known by God. And that's borne out in a lot of places. John 10, 15. Jesus said, as the Father knoweth me, even so now I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Galatians 4, 9. But now after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto you desire again to be in bondage? So without question, the New Testament gives us full access to the mind of Christ, right? 1 Corinthians 2. Because the revelation of God is complete. Even though we do not fully realize it all here and now. So in Revelation 22, we have that famous couple of verses, you know, verses 18 and 19. So, you know, we're in the last chapter of the last book and nigh unto the very last verses of the entire Bible where God makes it clear that his revelation is complete. I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God's going to make your life bad. Right? He's going to add unto you the plagues that are written in this book. If any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things that are written in this book. Why? Because the revelation of God is complete. It's perfect. It's mature. It's done. Right? So the completion of the New Testament canon, there's no question about it, and therefore the entirety of the Bible, provides the perfect, complete, 
mature, without spot or blemish, revelation of God, without error. No doubt about it. And this view of the perfect thing in 1 Corinthians 13 is the view that is typically adopted by Baptists and other conservative, non-charismatic groups. Why? Because with this view, it's clear that tongues no longer exist today. Um, there's still a lot of people arguing about that out in the world these days, but I know I was saved 38 years ago. And uh, when I was saved in the early 80s, uh, coming up, it just seemed like the charismatic thing was everywhere. Uh, now you're fighting Calvinists like crazy, but it seemed like the charismatic thing was everywhere. And uh, everybody was arguing about, you know, did tongues cease or not cease? And, you know, that was a big deal. Um, and, and Baptists, even if they didn't really understand the Bible that much, they would just go to 1 Corinthians 13 because there's a verse that says tongues will cease. And they're like, aha! So typically, again, you know, you can do the study as we have. And I think it's a fair consideration to say, yeah, the Scripture canon. There's no question about it. With this view... It's clear that tongues no longer exist today, and none of the revelatory gifts do, because the revelation of God is now perfect. It's the perfect thing. In the final canon of the entire Bible, all the miraculous signs are no longer in effect. And there are denominations of churches that are divided over this very issue. They typically don't study the Bible. What it actually says about it, in my experience anyway, right, if confronted with a biblical defense... People like that will typically default to their experience. I don't care what the Bible says. This happened to me, you know. But that's dangerous. You can't have your experience trump the authority of the Word of God. It doesn't work that way. But can I offer to you the fact that just because they might be wrong on this or because they're skeptics of this position, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily ignorant. They, too, study the Scriptures. You can argue they, they wrongly divide them. Okay, that's fair. But they, too, see things in the Scripture that point to a very different conclusion, and that's what I want to present to you now. And that's letter B. I'm going to make another case. This case is for the second coming. This is the case for the second coming. That which is perfect, an otherwise ambiguous statement, we're going to define. So let's do that. In reference to the second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth to set up his kingdom on earth during the millennial reign, please notice, there is such a thing in the scripture as the perfect man. The perfect man is Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4, 13, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Jesus Christ himself, the perfect man. You will be like Christ, so then you can be perfect men. But now, not yet. We're still working on it. We need to grow unto him, and we're going to keep growing until that day, right, when we'll be just like him. So he is the perfect man, and then the Bible also refers to something else that's perfect, the perfect day. And Proverbs 4 and verse 18 says, But the path of the just is as a shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. So without question, I think it's pretty clear. The second coming of Jesus Christ is the key event, right, when the perfect man returns to earth on the perfect day. 
ushering in what we understand to be the day of the Lord. I made reference to my friend and his, his weird movie with my name in it, but that idea of the creation of man in six literal 24-hour days, and on the seventh day God rested, and he sets the pattern, and, you know, Second Peter 3, and a day with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day, and chronology going back, ushers chronology, Adam 4,000 years before Christ, 2,000 years after Christ, you know, the rapture any day now, thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ on the earth. Everybody knows the chronology, right? That's the day of the Lord is the, the millennial day, the day when the perfect man enters this planet again and sets up his kingdom for a thousand years. And it is perfect. Jesus Christ is on the throne. The devil is bound. The curse is removed. Righteousness rules. Like, like seriously, y'all, I, just a couple weeks ago, I had my 60th birthday. It's not close to 1,000. I feel old. I've been around a few years. I, the more I'm around, the more I live and suffer in this body, I find it difficult to even comprehend what's going to happen in the millennium. I read the verses. I, I, I can read, right? I, I have a hard time comprehending a world with no sin. I have a hard time comprehending the glorified Lord like walking up and shaking my hand. I have a hard time comprehending there is no active devil. That's hard, it's hard to comprehend. But that's the perfect day. And that's the perfect man. And there's no doubt in that. Okay, so let's go back to the scripture. Let's go back to the verses in 1 Corinthians 13. Let's do the same work. Let's make the same comparisons. And let's see if there's a legitimate case that can be made for the second coming, right? Now we see through a glass darkly. Okay, well, we can make the same exact comparison that we made with the first case. That in the Old Testament understanding, you, you only see darkly. There's only so much that you can understand, right? But I think the question that we should be asking ourselves as we dig down a little deeper are some of the questions I think I put in your notes. See what? What is it you're supposed to see? And I think what you're supposed to see is the glory of the Lord. So you have places like Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5, the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, right? Ultimately, the prophecy of John the Baptist. Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Okay, that was prophetic, and, and it was referring to John, and John was the forerunner for the coming of the Messiah. And of course, he came already 2,000 years ago, but it wasn't completely fulfilled because Israel rejected him, and it's postponed, and he'll come back again. That is still yet future. So now... We can only see how? Well, through a glass, darkly. And I want to offer to you a different option for the glass. And that would be Job chapter 38 and verse number 30 where it talks about the waters are hid as with a stone and the face of the deep is frozen. And we saw Sunday night and Sam shared with us from the book of Genesis, and that was awesome, by the way. The deep right? Genesis 1-2, darkness was upon the face of the deep, and that deep is that body of water that separates the second heaven and the third heaven, and the apostle John in the book of Revelation is miraculously transported to heaven, and he sees all these wonderful things in the Revelation, and he writes in Revelation 15-2, and I saw, as it were, a sea, oh, wait a minute, of glass, 
because that face of the deep is frozen like pure glass. Sea of glass mingled with fire and them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name stand on the sea of glass having the harps of God. They're standing on it because they're in the third heaven where John is observing this. The top of it's frozen like glass and Jesus is currently in the third heaven and, and we can see him or we can see his glory now darkly through the glass. But darkly, it's not super clear. But then, when that which is perfect has come, considering the case for the second coming of Jesus Christ, then we see him face to face. Then we see him face to face. Again, comparing Scripture with Scripture, the Apostle John, once again, 2 John, verse number 12, having many things to write unto you, I would not write with paper and ink, but I trust to come unto you and speak, here's the phrase, face to face, that our joy may be full. In his next short epistle, 3 John, verses 13 and 14, I had many things to write, notice, but I will not with ink and pen write unto thee. But I trust I shall shortly see thee, and we shall speak face to face. Face to face. In this usage, friends, there's one thing that is absolutely clear. And that's that face-to-face can never be writing with paper and ink. Face-to-face cannot mean something written. John says, I, I wanted to write to you, but I, I'm going to wait for a better option. I'm not going to bother writing. I want to see you face-to-face. There is a scriptural, cross-referenced, clear, definitive understanding that seeing the glory of the Lord darkly through the glass of the sea and the deep in the third heaven will be eliminated when that which is perfect, the perfect man, comes on the perfect day at his glorious appearing in the second coming. The world saw Jesus Christ face to face at his first coming, but his glory was veiled, right? John 14, 7 and 9, If you had known me, you should have known my Father also. From henceforth you know him and have seen him. They're like, what are you talking about? They, because his glory was veiled, they didn't get it. Philip said unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long with you, and yet um, thou, hast thou not known me, Philip? He that has seen me hath seen the Father. How sayest thou then, show us the Father? Well, I don't know. You're just, you're just Jesus. I mean, was he fully God? Of course he was. Was it veiled? Yes, it was veiled. So Colossians 1.15, clearly he was the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Verse 19, it pleased the Father that in him, in Christ, should all fullness dwell, of course. Colossians 2.9, in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, no question about it. But it wasn't fully revealed. His glory wasn't. Well, when? When, when is that? When is the face-to-face? When is his full, complete revelation? Well, that occurs at the second coming. That's in the millennium. Again, the prophets, Isaiah 35, 1 and 2, The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. You know the context. That's the millennium. 
and shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it, the excellency of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God, because he's there. Isaiah 62, 1 and 2, For Zion's sake will I not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness, and the salvation thereof is a lamp that burneth. And the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness and all the kings thy glory. And thou shalt be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord shall name. So without question, when he appears, everybody's like, oh yeah, well, of course we'll see him face to face. Of course we'll see full glory. Of course we'll understand all that. Of course. But let's keep going. We're not done. Now we know in part. Okay, well, again, this is similar to the previous application. There's really no need for much change in this explanation, right? We only have partial knowledge of things. Um, you, you could even compare it to um, we know God personally, but certainly our knowledge of God personally is ever-growing. Like, like you who are married, you know your spouse, but every year you should know them even more, right? It's a relationship. It grows day by day as we walk with Him. In that context, the statement we know in part, that, I mean, that's true, whether we apply it to the first century or the 21st century, I mean, that's true. But then we shall know even as we are known, then after the coming of the Lord, I mean, we're going to fully understand everything completely, right? 1 John 3, verse 2, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, time stamp, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Isaiah eleven nine. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. When's that? Well, that's in the millennium, right? And, and remember we started at the beginning mentioning the fact that faith and hope, they don't cease to be in operation until the millennium. Faith and hope are in operation long after the Scripture canon. They don't cease to be in operation until the millennium shows up. When we have the full realization of all the things we hope for and we see God's glory on His throne. Now, to be fair, this view that that which is perfect is the second coming of Jesus Christ is the view that is typically adopted by charismatic groups. Why? Because they want to use it as a quick and dirty response to why tongues continue. Since the Lord hasn't come back yet, everything continues as it has been from the beginning of, the, beginning of creation. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. I am the Lord, I change it not. Right? And so they view it that way because they want to say that tongues and, and the gifts, you know, all continue until the second coming. And at least in the context of making an argument biblically, there's a good argument to be made. You've got to give them that there's a good argument to be made for the second coming. So, who's right? da 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 da, da drum roll. All right. Let us see. The comprehensive solution. Here we go. The comprehensive solution. The answer may or may not surprise you. I don't know. But here it goes. I think the perfect thing is the revelation of the Word of God. The perfect thing is the revelation of the Word of God, and that has to be a dual application because you have the small w Word of God, which ultimately is the Scriptures, right? Luke 4, 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, right? Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the Word of God, the Scriptures, the Word of God, the small w in your King James Bible. But the capital W Word of God in your King James Bible is Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word is with God, Right? 
And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Revelation 19, His name shall be called the Word of God, capital W. So the answer is, I'm not trying to cop out, it's both. It's a dual application. So before y'all get up and say, that was lame, you, that, was, that was bull crap, I'm like sorry, I didn't, I didn't just say that, edit that part. I want to point out to you, Bible students, that there are many other examples of dual applications that we readily agree to in the Bible, right? I mean, the coming of the Lord from the viewpoint of the Old Testament prophets, those mountain peaks of prophecy, right? People didn't necessarily, they didn't understand that the coming of the Lord was going to come in two steps because it was contingent upon whether Israel would receive him the first time or not. So there's a dual application to the coming of the Lord from the viewpoint of the Old Testament prophets. The new covenant, as it's referred to, well, there's a dual application to the new covenant. We have a spiritual application to the new covenant as new creatures in Jesus Christ, but the full application of the new covenant, according to Hebrews chapter 8, is to Israel, and it's in the millennium. There's no doubt about it. We talk about the church. Well, there's a dual application to the, the understanding of the term the church. There's a local church, and there's what we refer to sometimes as the, the universal church, the spiritual body of all true born-again believers from the resurrection to the rapture, right? Those of us that are seated in heavenly places, right, at the right hand of God, this is the, the true born-again believers that make up the church of God. But the local churches, it's a legitimate, real application. It's just temporary. It's just for a time, isn't it? What about sanctification? We have practical sanctification. We're ever working out, and we're ever learning, and we're ever growing, and we're becoming more and more holy, but positionally before the Lord, we're completely pure and holy and spotless. Not one sin, none, none whatsoever. What about sons of God? Well, right now we are spiritual sons of God, but eventually we're going to get new bodies and we'll be also physically sons of God. What about your salvation? Your salvation itself is only partial right now. It's secure, but it's only partial. Only your spirit is saved, right? Your body's going to get renewed and you'll be all body soul and spirit eventually right at the rapture what about the kingdom the theme of the bible well that's a dual application because you have the kingdom of god and you have the kingdom of heaven right and there are times when only one appears and only the other appears but ultimately when the lord comes back they're combined in one and it's complete and full and and all united right no question about it i mean the kingdom of god application well that's concurrent with the revelation of God through his small w word but the kingdom of heaven application is concurrent with the return of Jesus Christ the capital W word and each of the applications that are now and temporary and and not fully and completely realized well they're still real they're still legitimate they're still necessary they're necessary just for a time until the full and complete fulfillment arise, or arrives. It's just one is just a shadow or a picture of the other. Well, what does that mean concerning the passing away of gifts then? Because that ultimately is what we're trying to study here today. I mean, when, when do the gifts cease? Since both applications of the revelation of the Word of God can be biblically proven and defensible, 
and both have legitimate application. I mean, what exactly does that mean? Well, the fact that the Scripture canon showed up first on the chronology of history, then that gives us a timestamp for the beginning of the elimination of partial things. So, therefore, the last things you need to write down, basically, is the revelatory gifts cease upon the full revelation of the Scriptures. I think that's clear. So, for the church, the spiritual sons of God, that which is perfect is the Bible. But faith and hope cease upon the bodily revelation of Jesus Christ. So for Israel, the national Son of God, right, Exodus 4.22, that which is perfect is the return of their Messiah. And in so doing, fulfilling every word of Scripture without having to change one word, and making application across dispensations. Now, if you want to believe and teach it differently, obviously that's fine. That's your choice. You have free will. But, but let me just say this. If tongues are still active, for example, and I'm not talking about the ecstatic gibberish baloney that goes on in the name of... If, if biblical gifting of tongues is still active... And, and if you would be one of a group of people who might make a statement like this, I've heard this statement. Well, I mean, there could be the gift of tongues. It, it's probably, maybe, maybe God does it in some rare, remote missionary application where some guy, you know, machetes his way through the weeds and he comes across a tribe of people and they need the gospel and he doesn't speak their language and bam, God gives it to them and and, and people like to tell these stories as a concession to the possibility that maybe tongues still exist. Okay, okay, okay. that's, you know, that's fine. But, but can I at least say to you this? If you're going to do that, could you at least cite legitimate, verifiable examples and not just make up suppositions? Because that gets dangerous. Because that then bleeds into your theology if you're not careful. You can't just make stuff up and then say, because maybe, who knows? Well, God could have done it. Well, I, I guess. But you can't then say that that's the way it works. One thing is for sure, some gifts cease. There's no question about it. And if you're a dispensationalist, you have to be a cessationist. It's the only way to understand the details of the Scripture as they're given. And my last statement is this, and I'm done. Chapter 13, please don't forget, it's all about charity. So y'all, don't be contentious. Don't let this issue cause contention among brethren. Proverbs 13, 10, only by pride cometh contention. But with the well-advised is wisdom. Romans 14, him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. <coughs> let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, let him that eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. So, take this for what it's worth, study it yourself, 
consider the application and see if that doesn't clarify for you without having to do damage to any verse of Scripture, the proper dividing of what, of what God has to say. Let me pray and we're done. Heavenly Father, thank you for the revelation of your word. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the perfect, complete, preserved copy. And thank you for the privilege to be born in the country in which that language has been preserved. We, we don't deserve it. But to whom much is given, much is required, and you require much of us. I thank you for the men and women in this room and all the ministries that they represent and all the effort and time and sweat and tears that they shed so that your word can go forth and may it continue to abound. I pray that even as we ponder these things and, and consider what that means to us, that, that you'll give us wisdom. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.